are pleased to be kicking off our Summer Light series by welcoming back to the pulpit of Christ Church, uh, Daniel White. Uh, as many of you know, uh, Dan is the senior pastor of the uh, Yorba Linda Presbyterian Church in Orange County, California, a very well-known figure in this church's life for many years. Uh, for those of you who have never had the chance to, to meet uh, Daniel before, uh, he is a graduate uh, uh, in uh, biblical studies from undergraduate uh, degree. He got his Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. And upon graduation from that seminary was uh, granted the award, the David Hugh Jones Prize for Contributions in Music and the John Allen Swink Prize for Excellence in Preaching. Over almost 20 years of ministry as a uh, ministry director and pastor, Dan has served large churches in California, in New Jersey, and right here at Christ Church of Oakbrook. Uh, for those of us who are blessed to know him already, we know that Daniel is one of those ten talent servants. Uh, he can not only preach and teach, he can sing like a nightingale, he can lead worship, he can write beautifully, he's a coach, he has a pastor's heart, he is one of God's really marvelous servants. He is also a very fine husband to his wonderful wife, Alicia. She was with us at the first hour. I think she may be at the 2HC service this uh, second hour today. And uh, together, they are the very proud parents of four beautiful children, Sophia, Chloe, Daphne, and Luke. They left the kids home this week so they could enjoy some precious time just as a couple uh, here in the Chicagoland area for a few days. And I hope that their time with us this morning will be uh, one of the best parts of that journey. Will you join me in welcoming back to the pulpit of Christ Church, Reverend Daniel White. Thanks, bro. Go get him. Thank you so much for your kind welcome. I, uh, I hear it's been wet here. I may be from the land of fruit and nuts, but it's dry in Southern California. Well, a lot has changed since I was last year. One of the things is I could never stand out here before. There's lots of changes that happened physically. Certainly, there's a lot of changes that have happened in titles and names that, that I've come across. Uh, the first service, I noticed, you know, Nate was just Nate Klinger first service, but uh, now he's Reverend Klinger. That's been a change in titles. Uh, Tracy Bianchi, whom many of you know as a staff member, was, was neither a reverend nor a green mama when I was here last. And your pastor was just good old Reverend Meyer, and now he's Dr. Meyer. Amazing. And I mentioned first service, he actually had blonde hair when I was here last. <laughs> now, having sat in the senior pastor uh, seat for a while, I understand a little bit his turned gray and mine just turned away. But... Titles and names. I want to start there as we prepare to hear God's word together. Titles and names. See, my title to some is pastor. Um, for my wife, I am husband. My children, I am dad. For people in our uh, part of the country, people are very interested to know that I'm a registered voter. But my name, my proper name is Daniel. Now, did you know that our God has a proper name? Uh, around you are these gorgeous windows that Dale Olson designed, and, and you will see so many attributes of God, so many ways to describe God that are found throughout the scriptures, but did you know that God has a proper noun kind of name? 
See, the scriptures describe God's name, and scholars try and explain what it looks like to us in, in four consonants. In, in the Hebrew, it's four consonants, and so in English, we call it Y-H-W-H, which scholars tell us is best pronounced Yahweh. Maybe a generation ago, if you read, read the King James Bible, you knew God's name as Jehovah. So where did we learn God's name beyond all the titles that we find in the scriptures? Well, it's revealed to us in Exodus chapter 3. Perhaps you know the story, Moses wandering in the desert comes across a bush, and that bush is on fire, but it is not being consumed. And from that bush comes the voice of God himself. And in their interaction, God gives Moses directions on what he is supposed to do for his people in regard to Pharaoh. And one of the questions that that Moses has for God is, how is it that your people, the Israelites, are going to believe that I've been sent by you? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. You tell the Israelites that I am has sent you. You see, God's name, I am, is Yahweh. And we understand that it's been revealed to us there in that text. Now, if you fast forward a few tracks into the New Testament, then you know that the scandal of the gospel isn't that Jesus was a good moral, ethical teacher, some mendicant preacher trying to get us all to lead nicer, kinder lives. No, the scandal of the gospel is that Jesus, through his actions and word, proclaimed himself to be God in the flesh. Yahweh, I am in the flesh. Now, John's gospel, in a very unique way, captures that in some sayings of Jesus. Jesus, in John's gospel, wrestles down this Exodus chapter 3 name and proclaims himself to be God by saying, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life. This morning, we're looking at the statement that's found in John chapter 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So if you would like to open your Bible and turn to John chapter 11, we're going to read God's word responsively, beginning in verse 17. We'll read till verse 37, and in this way, we will be proclaiming God's word together. Let's listen now as we proclaim God's word for his message to you and to me. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And 
When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus wept. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was the fall semester of my freshman year. And that first time away from home provided for me a a season of evaluation. To look back over my life, one of the largest things I was dealing with at that time was a relationship that had just ended. It lasted over a year, and so there was significant pain. In that time of reevaluation, I remember thinking through how our relationship had gone. And I began addressing some of those if-onlys. Do you know what I'm talking about? I remember thinking, if only I would have done that. If only I would have said that, or maybe more appropriately, appropriately, if only I had not done that. If only I had not said that. And in that time of evaluating, I remember thinking, I bet if we were able to address these if-onlys of our past relationship, we might be able to piece things back together. We might be able to get together and start our relationship over again. So with this newfound conviction, I decided that the best way to communicate this to my ex-girlfriend was to put up some, some signs, some posters on the side of the road at the very off-ramp from the freeway where she had to get off. So one night, a friend and I went and we got on that first signpost at the end of the off-ramp and we hammered a sign that said, Kim, let's get back together. She would have to turn left and go under the overpass and there was a sign there and, and I said on that sign, Kim, Let's try this again. And just a little bit further down the road, under a light, there was another signpost, and I hammered a sign there that says, Kim, I still love you. You know, I, re- reflecting on this, it reminds me, if, if those kind of things were happening today, you know what we call that? Stalking. <laughs> I'm not recommending it. Listen, I don't know, have you read H.G. Wells' classic book, the, the, the Time Machine? Maybe in 1985 you saw that movie, Back to the Future. Maybe you're like me and you watch cartoons with your kids and Phineas and Ferb just recently had an episode where they built a time machine. Now there's something so attractive to us about the ability to go back in time because among other things, it gives us the opportunity to address the if-onlys of our past. And for most of us, We long from time to time to be able to go back to those places 
to the if-only places and address them. I want to suggest to you that this, this morning that that's a, a helpful paradigm to understand what is happening in John chapter 11. This interaction between Martha and Jesus and all that happens outside the tomb of Lazarus. And the meaning behind what Martha says when Jesus finally arrives. You see, what we didn't read this morning is that Jesus had gotten word from Martha and Mary many, many days before. They sent a message to Jesus that said, our brother, your friend, Lazarus, is very sick. Please come. And the scriptures record that not only was Jesus not in a hurry to get there, but he spent some time before he left. And when he arrived, Lazarus is dead. And so it is no surprise in verse 21 that the first thing that Martha says to Jesus is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact sentiment that would later be expressed by her sister Mary. Martha offers to Jesus her complaint. In her grief and mourning, she says, if only you had been here. And honestly, it is a complaint. It is an accusation. What she is communicating is, Jesus, if only you had been here, where were you when we needed you? When I was in college, I was part of a a traveling choir and orchestra, and Every time we had a break in school, we would go on a tour together, and one time traveling the Pacific Northwest, we sang in this one church, and then some of us were invited to different homes to spend the night in people's homes. This one woman invited some of my friends, and we were at her house, and when we arrived there, we met her husband, hadn't been at the worship service, and made it very clear right away that he was not excited to have us in his home. A little bit later on in that evening when her husband was away, this woman pulled us together and said, listen, I'm really embarrassed and I'm so sorry, but let me explain to you why my husband is acting the way he's acting. You see, we, we had a teenage son who developed, developed a brain tumor and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and he died. And so my husband says that he hates the God that he says he no longer believes in. Most of us in this room know that some of the most profound conversations that we can have about life and God surround death, especially death of someone that we know. And one of the most difficult things that we find in this scripture that reminds us what's throughout the scriptures is God's seeming willingness in his providence, in his sovereignty, his seeming willingness to disappoint us. God does not always act according to our timing and according to our desires for him to act. Now, does he? I wish this wasn't true, but I see this throughout the scriptures. How long did Abraham and Sarah pray for a son? How long did they wait? How many times did they finally end up just laughing at the idea that God would ever give them a son? Maybe you know the the story from the book of Job. Job, who was blessed in every way and righteous, and yet there in that story, he is battered over and over and over by friends who are telling him he must have done something wrong, and Job wants to take God to court. He is so frustrated because he's not hearing God vindicate him. God's people, Israel, were sent off into exile, and there by the rivers of Babylon, 
where they longed to be back in their beloved temple, where they were longing to, to express their newfound desire for fidelity to God as his covenant people. There the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Jeremiah and says, you, you're just going to settle down there and build your houses because you're going to be in exile for a long time, not according to your timetable. We don't look, have to look too much farther than Jesus spread out on a cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, God is not always willing to operate according to our time schedule or to our expectations. So we understand, don't we? When Martha sees Jesus, and the first thing she does is offer her complaint. If only you had been here. So how does Jesus respond to Martha? Verse 25 and following, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, this is where we have a kind of a large theological digression. Because in responding to Martha in this way, Jesus is painting some incredible theological truths. He starts by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus lands these incredible theological categories and personifies them. Not some far-off, metaphysical, abstract, philosophical constructs. No, I am, Jesus says, the resurrection and the life. If you want to know what those are about, look at me. And then he tries to unpack it a little bit by saying, if someone lives and believes in me, they'll never die. But then if someone lives and believes in me and dies, they're going to live forever. He uses these language interchangeably to give this full picture of what it means to have eternal life. And for Jesus, that's not about life after we die. That's about life in the here and now in fullness and including life that goes beyond our physical death. Now, if you're more than a decade old, then you've probably heard somebody ask this kind of question. If you were to die tonight, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you will spend eternity. Or perhaps you've heard the statement is, is in the similar vein. In fact, let me make sure I get it right here. <laughs> Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus so that when you die, you'll go to heaven. You see, somewhere in the 20th century, we described Christianity as a religion primarily that exists for when you die. And yet here, Jesus says something so much fuller, so much bigger than just a religion for when you die. No, Jesus says this is what it means to be resurrection in life. This is eternal life, life in the fullest now, and life for the future beyond death. Now, if you couple that theological majesty brought down into personhood, and then you couple it with what we talked about from Exodus 3, Jesus making these I am statements, connecting with I am Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, then you know that what he has just said to Martha is profound, something that should make her lay on the ground and quiver with the majesty of what he has just said, with the importance of what he had just articulated. So how does Martha respond when Jesus says, do you believe this? She says, well, yes. Well, sure, I believe that, Jesus. But right now, I'm grieving. And if it's all the same to you, I'm just going to go get my sister Mary. And you can talk to her. 
So, what happens when Mary arrives? She greets Jesus with the exact same complaint. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And in Jesus' hearing, according to this text, there were groups of people around there grieving with Mary and Martha. And they were saying, could not this guy, this one who opened the eyes of a blind man, couldn't he have prevented Lazarus from dying? Listen, I don't know how you deal with complaint. Maybe the complainers in your life are in the back of the minivan when you're driving down the street. Maybe in your job situation, the buck stops with you. And so you get a lot of complaints coming to your desk. I know this isn't true for Reverend Meyer, but in my uh, little humble parish, there, you know, complaints come to me. I don't know how you deal with complaints, but Jesus has just had three layers of complaints. If you had been here, if you had been here, are you really who you say you are? You're not being able to do anything about this situation. How does Jesus respond to these complaints? Well, it's recorded in the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. I'm not a veteran. My dad served in the Navy, but something unique has happened to me in the last dozen years or so. You see, I I will find myself coming face-to-face with somebody in uniform or somebody wearing a, a retired Uh, a retired service person's uniform or hat, and I find myself just going up to them and saying, hey, thank you. Thank you for serving. And part of it is I know that every Sunday morning when I gather before the congregation of the Yorba Presbyterian Church, I know that none of them were afraid to show up and worship that day, just like you. Maybe some of it's the, the fact that I'm a dad, and every night when I pray with my children as I put them to bed, I know that they are not worried about getting bombed out of our house. And I know that's not true in every place in the world, but it did surprise me recently when I turned on the television and I saw a live local feed, a live feed from a local news station, and there was just a still picture of an airplane, a military plane that had landed at a local military base. And there I saw a flag-draped coffin lowered down to the tarmac. And then I saw the parents of a 19-year-old Marine who's from Yorba Linda walk out to that plane alone to greet their son for the first time. I don't know their grief, but there was something about seeing their grief that just pulled me into it, and I sat there and shed tears in front of a TV screen. Dear ones, that is exactly why Jesus is weeping. One of the reasons we we know Jesus is weeping is because Jesus is willing to enter into the grief and brokenness of all of those people who are mourning the death of of Lazarus. Jesus does not stand far back, emotionally cut off and reserved. No, he enters into the place of brokenness that they are experiencing together. The prophet Isaiah says that there would be one to come who would be a suffering servant, one who would bear the sorrows and the grief of his people. That's what we see outside of Lazarus' tomb. 
It is Jesus crying like a baby because he's entering into the grief and sorrow of the people that he loves. But there is something else that's going on here. Not only is Jesus seeing grief and entering into it, I want to suggest that Jesus is also being reminded of some grief that he'll be experiencing. Listen, if I could just talk to you as a, maybe as a former family member. The last time I was here wasn't when I was on staff. The last time I was here was for the memorial service of Vicki Bear. And I stood right down here and was able to bear witness to her ministry in the life of my children and in my family. And then I walked to that side of the chancel and was able to sing a song with Nate Klinger and some other gifted musicians. And when that song was over, I sat down and I cried like a baby. Vicki wasn't my spouse. She wasn't my mom. But being there and entering into the grief of the people around also put me in touch with the grief that I was feeling that day. And this is what is happening to Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus. Not only is he willing to enter into the grief of others, but he is also recognizing some of the grief that he will be experiencing. It's a foreshadowing, a primer of sorts. Because you know in just a couple weeks, there is going to be another death. It will be his own. And he anguishes over it in the garden. He was recognizing it now outside the tomb of Lazarus. In just a couple weeks from this point, there will be more weeping and more complaints, followed by denials and abandonment by most of his friends. And in just a couple weeks, there will be weeping outside of another tomb. There, we, there will be a woman there who offers her complaint, her accusation to Jesus, whom she thinks is a gardener. And it is that one in her grief, in her tears, in her mourning, who will see that Jesus has stood with her in the midst of that difficult time and proclaimed by his very being that what we read and what he said outside the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus is incontrovertibly true. He is the resurrection and the life. You see, dear ones, this is what Jesus does. This is what he has always done. He is willing to enter into our places of brokenness, not just to provide incredible theological truths that inform our creeds and confessions, but also to enter into the places in our lives, to the if-onlys in our lives. And that's why his words to Martha are so important for us today as well. He asks her, do you believe? So I don't know if the, the signs on the side of the road really did the trick. And those posters were good, but they were also followed up by flowers, <laughs> cards, Hours and hours of phone conversations, extraordinary amounts of energy and time. And after the season of investment to try and address the if-onlys of our past relationship, you know what? We actually got back together, and it lasted three weeks. (laughs) Here's the thing. You and I, we can spend our time 
trying to address the if-onlys in our lives. Or, like Martha and Mary, we can bring our if-onlys to Jesus. And when we do, he enters that place with us. He enters into our if-onlys, and he offers to our if-onlys his I am. Dear ones, do you believe? Do you believe? Will you please pray with me? Our gracious God, in the quietness of these moments, in the holiness of this sanctuary, would you give us the courage to not only face the if-onlys of our past, but to invite Jesus there so that we would experience him as the resurrection and the life meeting him as our I am. For we pray in his powerful name, and everyone said,